Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 27. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told Him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered Him, You are the Christ. And He strictly charged them to tell no one about Him. Well, there's a powerful psychological principle called the bystander effect. And uh, the bystander effect is given as an explanation uh, to kind of explain why sometimes in emergency situations people fail to act. There's a number of stories of people who have died or been seriously injured, and despite uh, being in a group of people, they didn't receive any help from the people around them. The The bystander effect says that in certain situations... It's more likely uh, that you'll receive help if you're in a small group of people than if you're in a large group of people. And the reason that psychologists give for that is that in a larger group, there's a diffusion of responsibility. So take, for example, you go to a Sabres game. And uh, as you're walking in uh, the door of the Sabres game, you see this guy off to the side and he's laying face down on the ground. Now, a lot of people will pass by that guy and think, well, I'm... I'm not, I'm not a medical person. They have a medical staff here with the Sabres. There's security personnel. Somebody must have already helped them. Or with all these people that are passing by, somebody must have called a 911 already. But if that same person was on your doorstep laying face down, most people would call the 911 right away. You'd get the person a drink. You'd try to help them with their wounds. But in a group, there's kind of this diffusion of responsibility that we can kind of pass the buck to somebody else. Uh, psychologists did this study, a uh, psychologist named Dar- Darley and Latane in the 1960s. And in this study, uh, they had people fill out these questionnaires. And so they put them in this room and they're filling out the questionnaires. And while they were filling out the questionnaire, smoke started to fill into the room. Now, some people were all by themselves filling out this questionnaire. And the people who were all by themselves, 75% of them reported right away to the researcher that there was smoke filling up the room. But then what they did was they put two other people in the room with them, with, with a different person. And these two people actually worked for the researcher. And so these two other people, they'd just be going out doing their survey And for the people in the group of three, they found that only 10% of people uh, reported to the researcher that there was smoke in the room. Apparently, he figured that there was other people in the room, and if there was cause for alarm, they would be uh, being alarmed. And so they're just doing their survey, so they thought, well, I'm not going to worry about it. It's a diffusion of responsibility. It's, uh, I think, human nature to avoid commitment or to try to avoid responsibility. We don't want to be boxed in or we don't want to be held accountable for our words. There's a scene from the uh, TV show The Office and Andy uh, is talking to Ryan and he says, Andy says, I, I need somebody to talk to this seminar about business. Ryan says, and? Andy says, can you do it? Ryan says, okay, I, I don't like committing. I, I don't want to commit to things just like that. Okay, Andy says, so no? Ryan says, no, I, I don't like to commit to not do things either. That's just as big of a commitment. So Andy says, well, 
what do I put you down for, bro, hombre? Ryan says, yes. And he says, all right. Ryan says, yes, I'll do it. And he says, okay, thank you so much. It's going to be awesome. And Ryan says, if I flake, I flake. So many in our culture don't like the idea of commitment, don't like the idea of responsibility, so we kind of like to pass the buck, so to speak. And this has affected a number of areas of our life. It's affected our culture's view of marriage. It's a belief that if my spouse no longer meets my needs, I'm free to choose another. It affects our culture's view of the church and Christianity. If the church no longer meets my needs, then I can just pick up and go to another one. It affects people's view of work. If work somehow interferes with my life or doesn't meet my needs, then maybe I, I just won't show up. Or if I do show up, I'll just kind of do a half-hearted job. And in these things, there's kind of an illusion of freedom. There's an illusion in not of freedom and not committing. But the truth is, it truly is an illusion. Because we all make commitments. No matter what we do, no matter what choice we take, we're all making a commitment. A, person, a couple who lives together and refuses to get married says, I have the freedom to leave this relationship if it gets difficult. A couple who gets married says, I have the privilege to stay in this relationship even if it gets difficult. Both are committed to something. One is committed to this idea of freedom. The other is committed to this idea of faithfulness and fidelity. A person who will not commit to a church thinks he or she is free. If the church doesn't meet my needs, I'll just leave and go to another one. But in the doing so, the person is committed to shallow relationships. A person who stays in the body of Christ committed to de- is committed to deep and long-lasting relationships person who doesn't fully commit to his or her job, does a half-hearted job, he, th- he or she thinks that they're free. Thinks that they're, that they're free, but really they're committing him or herself to a pattern of laziness and probably financial struggle. The person who works hard is committing him or herself to diligence. The people in the bystander effect, people in the crowds, people who don't intervene, who don't call their police, they think that they're doing nothing, but in doing nothing, they're making a commitment. A commitment to apathy. To let somebody else take care of this situation rather than helping themselves. So no matter what choice we take, the number of choices we make in life, we're making commitments each time we make a choice, even if we think that we're doing nothing. That's why Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty three, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He says, if you're not for me, you're against me. You can't kind of stay on the sidelines and and stay in the middle. It's either you believe in me, you trust in me, or you reject me. you got to make some kind of commitment. And doing nothing is making a commitment to reject Him. Jesus is one of the most polarizing figures to ever live on planet Earth. Polarize means to divide or to cause to divide into two sharply contrasting groups or sets of opinions or belief. See, Jesus has been going around this countryside. He's been teaching. He's been doing miracles. And in doing so, he's polarizing people. He's creating two separate groups. Those who are insiders who believe in him, who trust in him, and those who are outsiders who reject him. So Jesus is a polarizing figure. He separates people into different groups, either those who accept him or those who reject him. See, the greatness of who Jesus is demands a response. The greatness of who Jesus is demands a response. 
So we see in this passage that Jesus is traveling with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, a region that was known for its messianic uh, endeavors where people had claimed to be the Messiah and tried to re, uh, stage an uproar, a revolt against the authorities. And so he starts with an easy, easy question. He says, who do the crowd say that I am? Who do people say that I am? They said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people apparently believe that Jesus was John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead after Herod killed him. Apparently, Herod himself even suspected that. Others believe that Jesus was Elijah, that he was this great Old Testament prophet who never died because uh, God took him up to heaven. And so they believed he was Elijah who had come back in the flesh. Others believed that he was a prophet, that he was just one more person in the long line of prophets who spoke on behalf of God but wasn't God himself or wasn't the Messiah. So he says, who do they say that I am? And he says, Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. And then Jesus intensifies the question and he says, but who do you say that I am? He brings the disciples to a point of confession, a point where they have to make a decision. Are they going to follow Jesus or are they going to reject him? And this is a watershed moment for the disciples when Peter, their spokesman for the group, says, you are the Christ. It's the first time we kind of see some growth in the disciples' lives. That they're no longer wondering who is he that the wind and the waves obey him. They're no longer wondering who this great man is. Now they know he is the Messiah. Now they didn't understand all of what that meant. We know in just a few verses verses after that we'll find that they're very much confused about who he is they think that he's going to stage a revolt against the romans but now they know he is in fact the messiah he is the one who was to come and just like last week we talked about the man who had his eyes opened and his but his vision was blurry still the disciples their eyes are open they believe that he's the messiah but their vision is still blurry they don't know exactly what that means But it's a huge moment for the disciples. And notice something else in this passage. Notice when Jesus asked the people, or asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They say, John the Baptist, Elijah, a prophet. And when Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? You would think that they would choose one of those three options. Okay, which which of the three do you think I am? But they, by their experience, knew Jesus on a much deeper and greater level. That He was much greater than those options. That He is, in fact, the Messiah, the Son of God. And they weren't going on other people's wisdom or other people's opinion. They were going on their direct experience with God. And so they believe He's the Son of God. So Jesus asks the disciples these questions. Who do you say, who do the crowd say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And I think that these questions that Jesus asks his disciples are questions that are perhaps even more pertinent today than they were when they, Jesus asked his disciples. Who do people say that I am? What does our culture say about Jesus Christ? Some people say that Jesus was a great teacher. He taught us to love one another. To lay down our lives for one another. That his fundamental message was that we should be tolerant to get along with one another. Some say that he was just a prophet. In the Muslim faith, that's what they say. He's just a prophet. He came to earth to show us what God was like. He was no more God than anyone else. But he was a prophet that showed us what God was like. Some say he was a great victim. He did good things and the crowd just kind of attacked him. Unsuspecting. Some say he was a historical fabrication that 
Jesus existed in some form, but through myth and legend, we don't know exactly who he was or what he actually did. Some say he was just this man who became a religious phenomenon by his cleverness. The world says many different things about Jesus, but the second question Jesus asked is most pertinent. Who do you say that I am? It's a question that we all need to answer. Maybe there's some people here who have never answered that question before. Maybe you've never answered the question, what are we going to do with Jesus? As C.S. Lewis uh, says in his famous argument, Jesus must either be a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. I mean, some people say that Jesus could be a great teacher, a great figure, but Jesus made such claims about himself. He claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to offer eternal life. So that if these claims, if he's making these claims, he either has to be a liar, that is, he's just making stuff up to try to get people to follow him. He either has to be a, a, a lunatic, that he's, he believes what he's saying, but he just has some mental illness and doesn't really know what he's saying, or that he's actually the Lord of the universe, that he is who he says that he is. It's not possible reasonably to believe that Jesus was just a good teacher or a prophet. So we must determine once for all, what are we going to do with Jesus? Will we believe that He's the Son of God? Will we trust Him? And maybe for some of us, God is asking that question to us today. Yes, there's many different opinions of me. People hold all different opinions about Jesus. Maybe Jesus is asking you that question, who do you say that I am? But I think there's more to the question that first meets the eye. And I think it's a question that applies to both people who are not believers and people who are believers. Leonard Sweet in his book, Jesus Manifesto, says this, Who do you say that I am is the question required of every generation. And every generation must answer it for itself. The historic Christian creeds are an expression of the need to answer uh, Jesus' who do you say that I am question. He goes on and he says, But that you say is contextual. Each new generation... In every culture is given a you say. And if we get our you say wrong, we get everything wrong since Jesus is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end of all things. Every revival and restoration in the church has been a rediscovery of some aspect of Christ in answering this critical question. See, sometimes we maybe read this question, we look at this passage, and we think that Jesus is kind of giving this academic lesson. Okay, kids, who do the people say that I am? Okay, kids, who do you say that I am? And they all say in unison, the Messiah. That's not what he's doing. He's not giving an academic lesson. It's a historical fact that Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, Jesus knew that. He wasn't getting them to assent to some mental, uh, you know, assent to some philosophical uh, principle. He's trying to get at their heart. It's loaded in the question, is the you? It's not an academic question. It's a question of belief. Who do you say that I am? Not who am I? I knew I, who I am. God knows who I am. But who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says, you are the Christ. And loaded in that is an f- implicit faith. Yes, you are the Christ. You are the one who's going to lead us against our enemies. You are the one who's going to save our souls. It's a personal question. And I think in a sense, it's a question that Jesus asks us every day. 
if we're, even if we're believers in Jesus. Who do you say that I am? Okay. The world says that I don't exist. The world says that I'm not faithful. The world says that I, I don't care about the suffering that you face. Okay, fine. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you believe that I'm your Savior? Do you believe that I'm going to come through for you? In short, do you trust me? That's a question Jesus asks us every day. Who do you say that I am? Chicago area pastor Leah, Lee Eckloff tells a story about a woman uh, named Kathy who had a profoundly developmentally disabled son. Uh, her son uh, was so disabled that he wasn't able to communicate basically at all. Uh, the only communication that she ever received from him was he would kind of laugh sometimes when she would come into the door of the hospital. Uh, but that was about it. One day when, she was, when he was about 10 years old, he really felt like, or Kathy, his mother, really felt like she wanted uh, the church to pray for her son, whose name was Nicholas. And so she went to the pastor, to Lee, and uh, asked if, if the elders would pray for her son. And uh, she said she didn't really understand why she was asking for that prayer. Uh, she didn't expect that God would fully heal her son. But the elders got together and prayed for her son. And for a while, nothing happened. I mean, there was no visible change. But then a number of years later, uh, Nicholas was 25 years old, and Kathy had been visiting him for that past uh, 25 years every week, never had communicated with him before. And so Kathy was doing this annual consultation with uh, the team of professionals who were responsible for caring for Nicholas. And in that meeting, one of the speech therapists said, I think Nicholas is making some progress. We've been using red and green cards for, or green and red cards for yes and no. He's learning to point at the right card in, in the answer to some questions. She said, well, would you like to see? Of course, Kathy replied. Her heart was pounding. So they went to Nicholas's room. The therapist held up the green and red cards and asked, Nicholas, is your mother with us today? Nicholas pointed to the green card. Kathy could hardly believe it. Other questions convinced her that it wasn't some accident. He really understood. She called Lee Eckloff in tears to describe the good news. She said this, All these years I'd visit him. I never knew if he even knew who I was. And now I know. He knows I'm his mother. And he's excited to see me. Then Kathy asked, do you remember when the elders prayed for Nicholas? This is God's answer. All that time, she never knew if her son knew who he was. And God is the same way. He's asking us, who do you say that I am? Do you know me? Do you trust in me? Are you excited to see me? The greatness of who Jesus is demands a response. We can't stay on the sideline. Each day we must choose whether we're going to believe in Jesus or we're going to reject Him. If we're going to believe what the world says about Him or are we going to believe what the Scripture and the truth is. Every day He asks us that question, who do you say that I am? Let's pray. God, we thank You that You are our Savior, that You're our Lord, our Messiah that you came to the earth, lived a 
perfect, sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again for our salvation. God, as we go about our lives, uh, God, I just pray that each day, as you ask us that question, who do you say that I am? We would answer knowing that you are our Messiah, that you're our Savior, that you're our friend, that you're our Father, that you care for us. God, I pray that we would base our belief upon your word, upon what you've revealed to us in our lives, rather than upon the opinions of men and what the world says that you are. And that all things we would trust that you're good, that you care about us, and that you love us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.